Welcome to When Men Open Up, a show where we are redefining manhood through transparency. My name is Dominique Bond. I'm Dexter Perkins. And we are on our fifth episode of I'm a Man and I Was Molested. Uh, we're about to bring on our guests in just a quick minute. But uh, just I mean, while we are waiting for him to get go ahead and get on, um, it's good to see everybody. Even though we can't really see everybody, it's good to be with everybody again. Uh, and to continue on this series. This, this series has been very impactful, very, very heavy. Uh, last week, if you joined us, we talked about the, you know, our thoughts and our reactions to everyone that we have interviewed over the past uh, few weeks now. And you know, there's been a lot of different things that have sparked our attention. There's been a lot of things that's made us say, hmm, you know, and and open our eyes to a lot of things and you know some conversations that we got to have and even some things that you know even our listeners and viewers have uh thought about as well and um and it's been a whole lot that we just had to make mental notes about of things that we had to go back and look on mm -hmm. and and even just reconsider with just Kids in general, you know yeah. what I'm saying. So that that was that was a powerful episode. So if you missed that episode, make sure you go back. Uh, you can easily, uh, you know, those you just listen to our live, you know, you can easily listen to our podcast on just about any platform and just search for that. Yeah, I mean, so listen, this this has been a a, a tremendously impactful series that we've been doing, and. Uh, uh, you know the the response. I'll say it a thousand times has been really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I think you know with uh, people who who can resonate with this particular series. Um, the the number of men who say, "Hey, that was my story." You know, it, it just kind of blows your mind. And so, uh, you know, once again, we're we're, we're going to dive into that tonight. Uh, the brother that we're going to bring on, I know he has an amazing story. And I, I believe that his story will be very helpful to uh, to those who listen. Before we dive into that, we're getting ready to bring him on right now. Uh, I know that he's ready to come on and, and we're ready to have him. Uh, just want to quickly let you all know um, that we do have an online course called Stressed and Burned Out. Now, we've been talking about this for the longest uh, there's actually a digital product, uh, a digital ebook that's available if you go into our online store. But we also have a physical book. So this is a companion to uh, Stressed and Burned Out. Uh, we'll let you know how to get that. We'll, we'll plug it in the comment section how you can get access to the physical book. But with uh, without further ado, uh, let us get ready to bring on our guest for today. powerful uh, conversation, you know, and even in our screening, you know, there were just some things that uh, he shared with us that I said, you know what, uh, he's going to bring real value to uh, to the listeners, um, and, and we trust that uh, his story, you know, will, will be helpful, you know, uh, all of the gentlemen who have uh, come on here, you know, we commend their, their courage, you know, it's not an easy 
this is not an easy topic by no stretch of imagination. Uh, no. Nor is it. And we're the ones doing the interview. You know? uh, but these men are sharing their life stories. So uh, we really just appreciate the fact that they are uh, courageous enough to do just that uh, to a, a public that doesn't know them, uh, but they're willing from their experience to offer uh, their story as a means of providing hope and to uh, to keep people from experiencing this as, as well. So without, uh, like I said, without further ado, uh, we are honored to have Mr. Uh, Leon Walker with us today. Leon, Thanks for having me, brothers. I appreciate it. Can y'all see me? Yeah, we can see you. Hey, Leon, just real quick, um, we're hearing a little feedback. Okay, let me, um, so you can... let me try to turn this down. How's that? Oh, I think that's, that, that's much better. That's, that's good much right better. there. Okay. Yes, sir. All right. Hey, so, Leon, uh, before we get uh, started with, with uh, the, the questions on today, uh, do us a favor. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the... Uh, All right, public. Leon Walker from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm, uh, I have three children. I have three God kids. I'm retired from the Navy. I retired in 2015, uh, 32 years. Went to Shaw High School for the people from my hometown that are listening. Um, you know, I had a great time in the military. I, I love people. I'm an author, and, a, and I don't consider myself a motivational speaker. I consider myself a messenger, you know, something different. But uh, that's, that's me in a nutshell. I'm continuing to write my books, continue to help people out with, uh, with my story, men and women. Uh, kids, young men, you know, adults as well. So that's me in a nutshell. Retired 32 years from the Navy, uh, living in Chicago currently, and I uh, love travel, I love to work out, and I love to eat some great food. Yes, sir. Well, hey, I want to say uh, thank you for your service. You know, as we, uh, we we talked before, you know, we're all veterans on this uh, particular uh, platform. So, man, I just want to say thank you for, for your uh, and Thank you all for serving, too. Yeah, too easy. Hey, Leon, once again, man, you know, I really appreciate you stepping up to the plate and you're saying, you know, it's, it's my time to really share my story with everyone. You just don't have a clue how this is going to um, impact a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of brothers, a lot of um, just, a lot, just everybody in general is going to be impacted in some form or fashion. Uh, but we really want you to uh, just try your best to be yeah. comfortable here. Um, and anything that you feel uncomfortable sharing, you think a question that we may ask is, is, is too much, just let us know. Um, and for the viewers and listeners and everyone else who is probably new, uh, we are going to be talking about molestation uh, and uh, possible rape and whatever the case may be. So that is the trigger warning for today for this video. So Leon, you know, I just want you just to begin, you know, about your first interaction your first experience with molestation how how it happened what age it happened so the first so one and and this was um a problem that i had my entire life um i never dealt with it i never told anybody and i'll talk talk to you about that as well so i was in the first grade um getting ready for school and back then uh you know you lose a tooth you put it on the pillow at nighttime in the morning time you wake up for some money or whatever quarters dimes nickels whatever the case may be I woke up that morning and uh, my two cousins were, had spent the night. They were much older than me, maybe six, seven years older than I was. And so uh, I, I got my money from under, under the pillow and uh, went in my sister's bedroom and that's where they were sleeping. And I said, hey, you know, 
I lost a tooth. You know, I got some money. I want to go to the Gus Candy Store after I get out of school. Gus's was one of our favorite candy stores. And so they just looked at me for a hot minute and didn't say anything. And then they snatched me and threw me on the bed. And that's when my cousins, two female cousins, laid on top of me, started kissing me. And sadly, it's, it's, embarrassing, it's embarrassing to say this, but that's when I learned how to kiss a girl from my cousins. And that, yes, that is incest, but I learned that from my cousins, my female cousins. So they kissed me, they sucked on my face, my jaws, my neck, my chest. And uh, I found a way to get out of it. It was a struggle. I found a way to get out of there. You know, I was crying. This is, I didn't get too in detail with my, in, in depth with it in my book, but I did talk about it briefly. But I found a way to get out of there. I uh, made it out. I went to school and I walked. My school was about maybe a, three quarters of a mile from our home. I was in the first grade. And so I get to my school and I was late, of course. And my teacher said, uh, Leon, what's going on with you? What happened? I told her I got into a fight because. Hey, Leon, uh, I think we lost you real quick. Um, if you don't mind, could you come back in to the video once ever, uh, whenever you get that, uh, your communication uh, situated? And just bear with us for one. Excellent. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, that is Mr. Leon Walker. We're going to bring him back in. I don't know what happened, but uh, thank you all for your presence. Can you hear me? Somebody called in. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, okay. I didn't know what was on my face. I just felt the pressure on my jaws and my neck. I was still throbbing when I left my, my home. So she asked what happened. I told her. You know, I got jumped, and she knew better. But she saw me, you know, and I could I, I was there with her, but she could see me. And so she could see the marks all over me. And so I told her I got into a fight, and she said, come here, baby. And she hugged me, and I remember my mouth being on her skirt. I was still bleeding because, remember, I had just lost a tooth that night, and it was still sore and sensitive. So my cousins, from them kissing on me and sucking on my mouth, it caused my mouth to bleed again. Well, I was spitting blood out on my way to school, but I didn't even realize that it was still, you know, on my mouth. And so I was trying to hide it as best I could because I don't want to tell on them, you know? I didn't want them to get in trouble. And that's one of the reasons why we continue to be molested and, and not raped, but molested because there's a couple of reasons. We'll talk about that. Um, but um, my blood was on her skirt and she hugged me and, and told my mother, but there was nothing, everything done, there was never anything done about it. And so I held that in. And it happened a couple more times, which I didn't talk about because when I did start talking about this at like 50 years old, I still wasn't ready for it, you know? And so that was the first incident. The second incident was um, my babysitter. And so I, I had 33 interviews or, or so between April and June. And during those interviews, they would always give me these stats. Like 90% of the people that are molested or raped are done. It's done. The perpetrators are, are somebody that you know or respect. In my case, um, it was my babysitter. This is the second case, my babysitter. And so um, the reason why I didn't tell on her um, is because now they say 80% of the cases go unreported. And out of those 33 interviews, I've talked to three doctors, a psychotherapist, a, a social worker, and a psychiatrist. This is in the last few months. Not one time did they ask me, Leon, why, do these, why are these cases so high that's not being reported? But I knew. I knew why they weren't being reported. It's because <laughs> when you are, in my case, I'm talking about me, not anybody else, but in my case, when I was molested by my babysitter at seven or eight years old, that's when I lost my virginity. It was on the, it was on the cusp of my parents arguing and fighting all the time. It was the cusp on, on them 
going into this divorce, this nasty divorce we had, they had. And so I had a lot of, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of unhappiness. I had a lot of sorrow. I was lost. I was a lost kid. I was looking, I was searching for somebody to help me, somebody to get me through this, but there was no one there, but my babysitter, my parents were great parents. Don't get me wrong. They were great parents, but my mother was working at a bar. My father was working at four. So they were gone a lot. All right. My father worked the late shift. And of course, working at a bar, my mother worked at a par bar. She's gone probably seven in the evening until probably three in the morning. So um, my siblings were always asleep or either in the basement somewhere. But it felt to, for her to, to take my virginity like she did, for her to molest me like she did, for her to rape me like she did, I processed that as love and affection and caring. Now, the 80% of the cases that are not reported, th 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 these doctors that have gone to school for 20, 25 years, have been in practice for 30, 40 years, they didn't know, but the 80% of the cases not reported is because the child, in my case, the child starts to like the perpetrator. I started liking my girl, my, my, my babysitter. She became, in my mind, at seven years old, she became my girlfriend. She brought me quarters over. She brought me candy. She brought me food. She held my hand. She hugged me. So 80% of the cases that go unreported is because the kid, the young man, the young woman starts to like the perpetrator, and the perpetrator is just as damaged as the child. So I don't know what was going on in her household, but I do realize that her brother had some issues and her parents were always fighting and arguing. So she found comfort in me, and I found comfort in her. And so that was the second incident, and it just kept going on and on. Then, we, then it went from us having sex to playing house. So she tells me, I'm, a, I'm, I'm dad, right? And she's mom, and we're going to have kids. And I'm like, well, how do we do that? You know, well, she showed me. And so that's what I was practicing. That's what I like. That's what I love. And that's what I wanted in my life. That was the easiest way for me to, 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 to get over my parents fighting. The, the easiest way for my mother trying to kill my father. The easiest way for my, from, you know, understand or not think about my father beating my mother. The easiest way for me not, not to vision my uncle knocking my mother's teeth out and me as a little boy picking her teeth up off the floor, literally. So that was the second incident. And me and my babysitter, we had sex often. And I tell these, anybody that's listening, if you got a little boy or son, and there are signs that you can look for when they're having sex at a, at a young age, five, six, seven, eight years old. And they are, and they will. Just think, this happened to me back in 1970, and it's still relevant today. So my third incident was, um, and I didn't, I didn't, I, I described this in my book, but I, it was too graphic, so, you know, I had to switch publicate, publishers. But anyway, um, my, it was a male member that in my family that used to always put his hands in my pants. And, but before he did that, he would put Vaseline on his hands, and here I am. Now, remember, my babysitter was, I was having sex with, with my babysitter, so in my mind, I'm good with that part. You know, I'm strictly with my love, love my babysitter. I even started liking my cousins, as sick as that sounds, I started liking my cousins. And so they're the ones that taught me, and then the babysitter. And so here, now we got a male in the picture, and I didn't know why he was touching me. I didn't know why he would put Vaseline on his hands and put his hands in my pants. And even today, at, at 54 years old, I still have a certain amount of pain in my private area, okay? So I didn't know why he was doing this, and then he would force me to lay on top of him, and I'm fighting, 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 and uh, because I didn't want to do that. There was never any time of penetration. The only time that it was skin touching skin was when his hands touched my private area. And so I couldn't do much but, like, hit him, push him, bite him, 
you know, and then he began, he began to bully me. And so I had all these anger issues in me for a, a very, very long time. And then going from my, 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 my cousins to my babysitter to him, I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know who to like, you know, so 90% of the, um, um, cases that are sexual abuse cases that are reported are by somebody that you know or respect. 80% of the cases go uh, unreported. One out of three little girls will be molested by the age of 18, and one out of six little boys will be molested by the age of 18. I fit in all those categories. I was in all those categories at six, seven years old. And so I couldn't process anything but hurt, anger. I wanted to kill. I want literally as an eight, nine-year-old kid, I wanted to kill the male member of my family that did that. And I knew how to kill him because when somebody does something like that to you, it's so devastating that you try to think of other ways to get back at him. So I couldn't punch him. I could have, but it wouldn't hurt. I, I could bite him. I could kick him. But the thing is, like I said, when my mother tried to kill my father, she had a gun. And the gun was always, like, hidden. But I found a gun. And so I had a plan to kill the male member of my family because he what he did to me. Now, the women, I didn't want to kill them. Later on in life, I wanted to hurt women. I wanted to break their hearts. And I did that often, probably 25, 30 years, because of me not, not fixing what happened to me as a little boy. So now I see my mother's gun in her bedroom. And there was times why I went to get that gun because I knew he was coming over every weekend. And I really had a plan, a well-thought-out plan to murder him at eight, nine years old. So that was the third incident. Wow, Leon, yeah. Man, that, that's, uh, man, a lot of trauma, my brother. Um, let, let me ask you this, because uh, there's a, a few a few uh, things I, I want to get some clarity on. Uh, concerning the age of your babysitter, how old was she? Uh, she was probably, I would think, between 13 and maybe somewhere in the 13, 14, somewhere in there. Because she was the same age as my brother, and he was probably six, seven years older than I was. So, yeah, around that age. I got you. Now, uh, you know, I, I guess the first question that that really stands out for me, uh, at any point in time, whether it be with the cousins, whether it be with the babysitter, or, or even with the male family member, d did you tell your parents or anybody? No, so a couple of reasons. Again, like they say, the 80% the cases go unreported. I never told him, I, and here's why, another reason why, you know, fear of, of um, retaliation, right? Fear that nobody will believe you, right? And the biggest thing that the reason why I think the, 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 the case is not reported is, is so high is because the fear of losing my girlfriend, which is my babysitter, the fear of not getting any more candy or money or love or hugs or even sex. So fear of retaliation, fear of people not believing you. And I know cases of, you know, being a senior leader in the Navy, talked to young women that were molested or raped. Um, their mother or father knew. Family members know. They know when the person is, is doing what they're doing because that person is considered a child molester, like in jail, they call them a chomo. That person's considered that at a young age. And in the family, the family knows. A lot of times the family knows. And so the reason why I didn't tell is because I didn't want, I didn't want her, her to stop loving me. I didn't want her to stop kissing me, you know? I don't want her, her to stop bringing me candy and food and stuff. It was sad, but that was a way for me to feel good about myself, you know, because my parents were fighting. When my father came home from work drunk, I love him to death, still love my father right now, even though he died in 99. When he came home from Ford, Ford Motor Company in those blue coveralls, I knew it was going to be an argument. I knew it was going to be a fight because either he was drunk or my mother was pissed off and working all night 
or he was pissed off from somebody flirting with my mother at the bar because the bar was down the street from us, about a half a block, about a half a mile from where we live. So it was always some anger and it was always tension in my household. And man, I got I got tired of, I, I got sick and tired of that tension. I just didn't know where to go and what to do. So why would I tell on my babysitter? Because no, if I tell on her, she's going to get in trouble. If I tell on her, she's not going to give me the food anymore, the candy, the cookies and the money. She's not going to show me the, the, the cartoons when I want to see the cartoons. She is my babysitter. But she went from my babysitter to my girlfriend. And I was just fine with that. You know, so it, it allowed me to not think about Oh no! When my father comes home, you know he's gonna he's gonna punch my mother. Or when my father comes home, my mother's gonna shoot at my father. All I thought about is, you know, my babysitter on her way over here. Good, I'm good to go. I didn't care about anything after that. I didn't care about school. You know, I could barely concentrate in school. You're talking the first grade, second grade, third grade, all up to the sixth grade. I could barely concentrate because all I wanted to do was be with my little girlfriend, and all I could think about was what my cousins done to me, how they taught me how to kiss, and it. it I started processing it more and more. It went from you know, being a bad thing to like that, darn, that felt good. You know, I like that. And then that's when the porn came in. So I put it all together as a coping mechanism just for me, just for little old Leon. I had a coping mechanism to get me through the horrors of my household that we had at that time. Now, now you did mention as far as uh, the, the fear of retaliation, uh, you, you recognize that by way of the babysitter that you know that meant you know no more candy no more food right. no more sex uh with respect to the male family member did he ever say that hey if you say something uh, i'm going to hurt you or it was it just did you just assume that you know uh, injury or harm would come okay so there was two something? things to that um he bullied me and when we would go to my grandmother's house she lived on the west side of Cleveland. There was this, there was this specific tree, like a bush in the backyard, and they had these things on them called cuckabugs. They were round, about that big, and they had spikes on them, right, all over them. So he would make me lean up against the tree, and he would toss them into my face. One landed on my cheek, another one landed on my cheek, another one landed up here, and my face was full of them, and I couldn't do anything but cry. And he said, "You know what? This is if you tell." If you tell on me, me touching you, I'm going to do this to you every day. And so he had a way to get to me because it was like I was a little kid and he was older. So what can I do, you know? But the more he threw those things in my face, the more pain I felt, the more the, the more blood came out of my face, the more I thought about shooting him. The more the closer I got to getting that gun, every single time he would throw those things in my face. And what's crazy to me is that I, would, I went in the house and told my mother, my father wasn't there. And she pulled them out of my face one after another. And I remember her wipe, slightly wiping my face down and putting Vaseline on it. But it was a time where that, at that time, that's when I became a real, real evil little boy because I had harbored that anger. I couldn't cry. I couldn't let it out. Because he would tell me, you better not cry. You better not say anything. So he taught me how to control my anger in a way that whereas it, when, it's, when it finally did build up, I would blow up. And that came out in my adult life. But he taught me how not to cry. And I forgot for about 25 years how to cry because of that man. And so the more he did that, the more he made me think about evil things to do to get back at him. And the only thing I thought about was that gun. That was the only thing I thought about. And trust me, I had plans to shoot him. I had plans to actually murder him. I had already processed it. I had thought it all the way out. I knew where the gun was. I knew how to get it. I knew where the bullets were, right? And so I knew also at 8, 19 years old, if I kill him, 
I'm not going to jail. What are they going to do with me? Call me crazy, call me stupid, call me slow. I already felt that way anyway. Because of the sex with my babysitter and because of what my female cousin did to me, I wasn't concentrating in school. I go to school just to look for the girls. In fact, in the kindergarten, before all of this happened, I was caught looking up under the girl's skirt. And I got spanked for that. But that was just like maybe something I was, you know, seeing in the porn movies or whatever. But when, the, when I got in the first grade, it took off, you know, all of that, those egregious ways and all that negativity just took off. And then the, my cousins just magnified it. My babysitter magnified it. And then the male member magnified it. But that took my anger to a whole different level, bro. Whole different level. So I remember times going to my mother's bedroom, opening up the gun. It was a 38 caliber, midnight blue, steel, spinning the barrel, spinning it, spinning it, clicking it back in. Because I had planned on really like being sophisticated when I shot him. I wasn't going to just get and go bang, but, you know, I wanted to be play around with it. And, and, you know, it built my confidence up as far as handling, handling a weapon, you know? So yeah, I really had a plan to murder him and uh, it was going to go down. And I didn't care because like I said, I processed, you know, the, um, what would happen to me afterwards, I processed the consequences, consequences. And there weren't any killing him would have been bringing myself back to life because he killed me. And so my thing was, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And the older I got, the more confident I became. The older I got, the more plans I had. Because I used to watch his car come over, and when he pull up, I was sitting in the backyard on the back porch and watch the car pull up. He had for, not forgotten about it, but he didn't know that I had plans to kill him. He had no idea. He'd always turn his back on me. And it only took me a second to get in my mother's bedroom to get the gun. My mother had the gun readily available because she did try to kill my father. And she emptied the barrel on him, but it missed him. And so the gun was always loaded, and I knew that. So in my mind, that gun is loaded for me to kill him. So I had a, I had a plenty, plenty of excuses to take him out. But I say now, unfortunately, back then it was fortunately, he got murdered. He got shot in the mouth with a shotgun. And my mother's like, that was her only brother. And she's like, well, you know, we're not going. You guys don't have to go to the funeral. Y'all stay here. And I was like saying to myself, you have no idea. I didn't plan on going to the funeral anyway. Myself, I said, you know, if I if y'all make me go to that funeral, I'm a, it's gonna be some drama in that funeral. I didn't care, bro. The anger has set so deep into my soul, I didn't care. You know, my thing was to kill, he's dead, I'm gonna kill him again. I don't think like that now. It took me a long time to get over that, but that's how I was thinking. Again, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, as I get through it, remember what he did to me, I had a good excuse to get away from murder, and I could have. So, so um, tell everyone your your initial reaction when you heard about that, and when you first learned about um, what happened um, to your family member. Um, was it a uncle. cousin or uncle? Uncle, um, that your uncle was murdered. What was your initial reaction? Or My initial re reaction was good for him, you know. And I I lived that life. I thought that, and you know what, man, I'm gonna tell you, Dex and Dom, that that mindset. Uh, and me not forgetting how to cry, it hurt my relationship because when I was with a woman, I would say nasty things to her, make her cry, and it didn't bother me at all. It didn't move me at all. I was so cold, man, as a as a child. I didn't process it. I never got help for it until I was 50. But uh, when I found out, and, and it's another thing, we were at my grandmother's house, and they, they came on the radio, and they, they announced it that so-and-so was shot in the mouth. There's a shotgun blast on East or West 122nd Street 
um, they gave the name, and my grandmother's like, we was playing. We're in the, in the living room playing, and she was like, Shh, be quiet, be quiet. I turned around and started laughing because I already knew. I said, either the guy that's going to kill him going to kill him or I'm going to kill him. And so that was my initial reaction, like, either somebody else going to get him or I'm going to get him. They had no idea I had a plan. My grandmother, I had a plan to kill my grandmother's son. I was quite comfortable with it, too. Like I said, I knew I wasn't going to jail. I wouldn't get locked. I wasn't going nowhere. So my initial reaction was good for him, which I don't feel like that now. It took me years to forgive him. It took me years to forgive my babysitter. It took me years to forgive my cousins. They wound up being murdered, too. Well, one died an alcoholic, another one was murdered by her boyfriend. She, she got, he beat her with a hammer. Hey, Leon, can you, uh, can you go back for a minute and, uh, with, um, with your female cousins, your babysitter, and your uncle, what was the time span? How long um, did it, did the molestation um, in the- It in started the in the first grade. And then um, it went till about the fifth, sixth grade, because um, third grade. Once my cousins did what they did to me, it put me on a really, really dark path. And since they were older than I was, I started liking older women. Younger girls didn't turn me on at all. Younger girls didn't do anything for me at all because they weren't developed. When my cousins did what they did, I, they had they were developed. Right. And I fell in love with my third grade teacher. And I used to what I used to do is go to third grade. And when I was in third, grade, I would go to school and get in trouble on purpose so that she can. So when back then we got swatted. Right. What I would do is do something devilish or devious in classroom on purpose to get her attention. And she would have to swat me. But before they swat you, they grab you and adjust your pants. So I wanted her to touch me in that way. I wanted to smell her perfume. I wanted to hear her breathing next to me because when she had to swap me, she would have to, you know, get on me. You know how you get, after you have to corral a child to swat them, get them ready. I didn't feel the pain of the swats. I felt like she liked me. In my mind, I liked her. So she was another girlfriend I had in the third grade. So what's that, seven, eight years old? So um, that was my way of dealing with it. That was my way of coping with it. That was my way of, of making myself feel good about what I was doing, even though it was wrong. You know, so those all those three incidents happened from the first grade up until the sixth grade. And had we not had we not lost our house, my parents got divorced in like 78, 77. Had we not lost our house and had to move when I was in the sixth grade, I would continue having sex with my babysitter without a doubt. At that point, I was well versed. You know, I had lost my virginity at eight years old. Losing virginity to me was nothing. I was proud of that. It was gone. That was a badge of honor for me. It was something that's supposed to happen. But has, had we not lost our house, and when we did lose our house, you know, the first thing that went through my mind, it wasn't like, oh, we lost the house. I was like, oh, I'm not going to see my girlfriend anymore. We walked from our house that we lost to the lady that I was sent to live with that I didn't know, and then my mother and brother went to move to a hotel. I didn't see my mother and my brother and my sister probably a year or so. I would, would, had much rather been in a foster care or orphanage. We were on our way. My sister and I was on our way to foster care. But, um, yeah, the, it started first grade, and it didn't stop until the sixth. Had it, had it we not lost the house, I would have still, still been having sex with my, my babysitter and possibly probably kept kissing my cousins. I don't know. 
you know, because that was normal to me. Not kissing him became abnormal. Not having sex with my babysitter became abnormal. So, yeah, Ed, from first grade to sixth grade. So let me ask this, Leon. What? So after sixth grade, uh, you already introduced to sex. Uh, you've been molested. What what type of implications and impacts do you think that those experiences had going, say, forward from uh, high school onto your early so adult? So the impact it had was um, quite a few things. There was a time where I, I became real introverted and shy for like the sixth or seventh, the seventh and eighth grade. Um, because we weren't, I weren't, wasn't around my, my, my babysitter anymore. I didn't see my cousins anymore for years. So I wasn't practicing the sexual misconduct. So I had started going into a shell. So that molestation and those rapes started coming back and make me feel like less of a person. Right. And so, um, later on in life, let's talk about how I didn't, I was upset with women. So, you know, I, had I, you know, I had the, I was raped, I was molested, and I was fondled. I had the blueprint to be a rapist. I had the blueprint to, to, to fondle little boys. I had the blueprint to molest little girls. But I didn't choose to do that because it was done to me. And all the people use the excuse, what happened to me as a child, that's why I did it to this child. They full of crap. And that's one thing that makes me extremely upset. But I forgot how to, I had forgot how to cry. That was taken out of me. I didn't know how to hold hands. I didn't know how to hug. I didn't know how to to cuddle. I didn't want to do it. And I'm talking about my 30s and 40s. What happened to me at from five years old to 11 and 12 stayed with me until my 30s or 40s because I never processed it. I never got help. So my thing was, okay, let me go back to what my cousins did to me. Let me go back to what they taught me. Let me go back to what my babysitter taught me. And all I knew was the, the physical attraction I had to women. It wasn't like holding her hands to make her feel good. I mean, it's to make me feel good. It's about me. So I became very, very self-centered. And I didn't realize this until a few years ago that I was very, I was selfish. I could plan a nice weekend for a woman. You know, I can come up with this nice itinerary. We get our, you know, we get a, we get a pedicure, manicure. We go to a movie. We, we go to a play. We have some nice drinks. We go to a hookah bar, whatever the case may be. But that was all just to lure her in. Because after talking to certain women, you get to, feel, you get to realize what they want, what they don't want, what they like. And, but in my case, I got to figure out what they really needed in their life. And a lot of times it was it was a detention, but I'm not going to be hugging you and sitting up with you and cuddling with you all day. I'm going to make you happy because you haven't been to the movies in two years. You just told me that. You haven't seen a play in five years. You just told me that. You haven't had a door open for you in, in six months. You've been beat. You've been cursed out. So I did the opposite of what they weren't getting. I did, you know, the, the nice things. And, and I lured them in just to have sex. It wasn't to keep them around. I don't want a relationship with nobody. I didn't have a relationship... I lost a relationship with my mother in the sixth grade. So how did I have, I didn't know how to have a relationship with the woman. I didn't care to do that with the woman. So my thing was, it affected me. I didn't know how to cuddle. I didn't know how to communicate. You know, I didn't know how to listen. I didn't know how to behave. I didn't know how to respect women. My thing was total disrespect because of what happened to me as a child. I'm getting all of y'all back. I'm not going to rape anybody. I'm not going to follow anybody. I'm not going to molest anybody, but I'm going to break your heart because my heart was broken. I moved forward in life not thinking about, you know, what my, my uncle did to me, my private area, it hurt, or what my babysitter or my cousins did. I didn't think about that. I blocked it out. That was the, my foundation of how to treat women, was verbal abuse and just, you know, mental abuse, all those types of things. And so that was my way of, 
because I realized what they had done to me, what my what my babysitter did, did to me, and what my cousin did to me. I realized that it, it controlled me in a way. So I said, you know what? If I do this to these women, I can control them too. So yeah, I was doing a Facebook live a while ago, and a lady called me a predator. Back then, she said, "You, you, well, you were." I said, "I was." I didn't think about that. Never, nobody had ever told me that, but I was. So I'm going to pray on the weak women. I'm going to pray on the women that have low self-esteem. I have no respect for me. A dog on show don't have no respect for you. Why should I? Every woman that I saw was my cousins, or every woman I saw was my babysitters. I gave them a face. I, regardless of how pretty they were, I gave them a face in my mind, and I got my cousins back through other women. Other women suffered because of them. And so that's why you hear these guys out here. I never beat women. I believe in hitting women. But I was, it was, the things that I was doing was worse. You know, the mental torture and the verbal abuse, you know. Um, but the, I hear these guys out here talking about, you know, I'm killing these women because they're, my babysitters did this, whatever. You don't have to kill anybody. But I was killing women. I was killing their soul. I was killing their spirit by beating them down verbally, by not returning their phone calls, by ignoring them. I got real good at, at, at ignoring women and not returning phone calls. You know, I got real good at, at not responding to their questions. I got real good at using reverse psychology. So carrying it through my life, um, Dom and Dex, uh, it, it really damaged me as a young man and it, it damaged me as a man. And then guess what? I joined the Navy, the world's biggest party, the world's longest party, and I get exposed to all these women overseas, all these exotic women all over the world. So do you really think I respect them? No. All I had to have in some countries was a bag of rice, a bag of oranges, and maybe, maybe $20. If I'm paying $20 for women overseas, it's two, three days, not two, three hours. So it really hurt me as far as I didn't, I didn't have the respect I should have had for women. I didn't value women at all. I didn't. I didn't. And even though I've dated some, some great women, great personalities, great morals. And to answer your question again, I, it screwed up all of my, my relationships because I forgot the foundation that my parents gave me. But I remember the foundation that my babysitter, my cousin, that my uncle gave me. Uh, did you ever have a chance? Uh, I know you said um, your, I think you said both of your cousins um, yes. passed away, correct? One passed away. She was um, okay. an alcoholic. Another one was murdered by her boyfriend. They were pretty, they were petite women, you know? But yeah, the alcohol killed one and boyfriend killed the other. They beat her with a hammer. Did you ever have a chance to um, talk to them about, you know? No, they, they would come over. It was like a hit and miss thing, but um, like I say, Dom and Dex, when they did what they did to me at first grade, I was shot, cry, crying, hurting, mouth bleeding, mouth hurting. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some candy, but they took that away from me. Um, but then I had, let's call them nightmares. You know, you can call them dreams, daydreams. A lot of daydreams about what they did, because don't get me wrong, as I, the more I started thinking about it, the more I started liking what they had done to me. And here I am learning how to kiss from my cousins, incest. So, again, I didn't talk to him about it. I kind of blocked it out. But um, I didn't want it to stop. It did stop after I started processing it. I liked how it felt. Because you got to remember, they put sucker bites. We call them sucker bites all over my face, everywhere. And um, after a while, I get to school, I get home, it starts feeling good. It went from, like, pain, my mouth bleeding, them biting me to touching it is like a soothing type of thing so um i never talked to him about it 
I didn't see him at all. Throughout the years, we see each other, you know. But uh, I believe they were having sex, too, at a young age. At teens, I'm sure they were. Because what, what they did to me, either somebody did to them, they saw it in a movie, or, you know, they wanted to do it to me, and they liked the way it felt to them. Let me ask this, Leah, because I, I want to get into uh, your time now as an adult, you know, you, you, you discussed now you're in the, the military, the Navy, uh, you know, us having been in the military, you know, we kind of know what it's like to be abroad, and, uh, you know, kind of the, the nightlife apart from being, you know, uh, in your unit. So as far as relationships are concerned, uh, did you ever get married or what, what did relationships look like? Now, as you're starting to uh, mature, so relationships to me look like a thing of beauty. It doesn't have to be anything physical. It could be strictly platonic, which I love, and I think that the the most beautiful relationship starts from a platonic uh, aspect. Um, but relationship to me, it's it now. It's more like I know how to respect myself. I, it's not about not. It's not about knowing how to respect yourself. It's about wanting to and 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 just the mere fact of respecting yourself. You're not gonna do to people what you don't wouldn't do to yourself. I'm not going to abuse myself sexually so I wouldn't abuse, abuse them sexually, like just taking it and, you know, all that type of stuff, which I never did. But um, to me, now relationship looks like, it, you know, it's a lot of healing for me because I know that the type of person I was, uh, that I'm not that person anymore. And I look back at myself now like, man, how did you do that? How did you cheat? How did you cheat on her? You know, how did you curse her out? How did you call those names? How did you watch her sit there and cry and smile? You know, I see all these things now, I process all these things. After I've gone through therapy, it's like I was just a nasty, evil, dirty, downright dog. And that was a, like a badge of honor for me, you know? I One of the, the worst things, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, I'll tell you. Um, but all the relationships that I've been in, I was, the, they asked me, I was a wrong, in the wrong. I was asked a question in one of my interviews. Uh, Leon, how do you know when you have the right one? I've always had the right one. I was always the wrong one. Always. I met some beautiful women. I'm talking about the out, the inside. I met some beautiful women, and I still meet beautiful women now. But I, I appreciate the beauty from the inside more than, than the outside. You know, I was infatuated by looks. I was infatuated by lips because my baby should have had big red lips. I was infatuated by breasts and buttocks. I was infatuated by all of that. I was infatuated by tan skin, brown skin, because my baby should have, that's what she had. That's what my cousins had, that brown, golden skin. It's not a racist thing. It's not like I was color struck, but that's what I was seeing. You know, so my relationship now, I look at it as a thing of beauty. You know, I like to get to know a lady. I like to communicate. And through my therapy, I learned, and I always talk about this, I learned about the components of a relationship. I went through therapy at 50 years old. I had no idea. I had no clue what the components of a relationship were. You know, she asked me, Leon, do you know the components of a relationship? And I got upset with her and I walked out. Because I didn't know. I was embarrassed. She's like, you should notice at 50 years old. I'm like, I don't know. I'm up in there crying. <laughs> you know, crying. Letting it out. But um, some of the components are, if you have kids and I have kids, will I allow you to discipline my kids? Will you allow me to discipline your kids? Right? And here's some key things. Had these women asked me about this, it would have made me reflect. It would have made me think. It would have made me think about myself. Leon, what was your father like? Not one woman. And I'm not proud of this, Dex and Dom. I'm not proud of this. But I've dated... I've been with thousands of women, right? Horrible numbers, horrible. And, but not one has 
ever asked me what my father was like. Not one has ever asked me what my mother was like. That's a component of a relationship because had they asked me that, they would have found out or made me find out, made me do some research, which I wound up doing later on in life, that my father had a very extreme personality. Either he worked long, he drank hard, or he, he watched porn, whatever. My mother had a very addictive personality. She was addicted to cigarettes, and she became, later on in life, addicted to crack. All right? So my personality was I was addicted to porn. I was addicted to lying. I was addicted to deceiving, right? And I would deceive and lie and cheat for long periods of time. That's my father's extreme personality. So I had it bad, but I could have had it, have had it better had the, any one of these women say at one time, Leon, what was your dad like? I'm not going to hide it from him. Well, my father was rough. You know, he drank a lot. He was a socialite. You know, people liked him. My mother, my mother smoked crack. She was very addictive. She was very stubborn. She would hold things in. She never cried. And that may have set me in a, on a different path to have a fruitful, healthy relationship. Instead, I went into my, into my engagement to get married being immoral. Very, very dysfunctional at 29 years old, man. And I'm in the Navy. At the time, I had like 12, 13 years in. Being very dysfunctional, being very um, deceiving, you know, being very evil. What man, what man, you know, what man cheats on his fiance? That is just, I was sick, bro. I was sick. And then I wind up talking to you guys about the relationship. I wind up having two women pregnant at the same time. You know, that is just the worst thing you could do to your girlfriend or your husband or boyfriend or whatever is give them a disease or get someone else pregnant while you're in a relationship. I'm not talking about beating or, or killing. That's bad too. But the other thing, the worst thing you do is give your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, whoever, a disease or get somebody pregnant. And I got somebody else pregnant. I, I got one more quick question, and then uh, I'm going to let Don ask this question. So how did this play out in front of your children with their mother? Okay, so that's a really good question. Um, when I – and this is sad, bro. It's hard, but I'm, I'm going to tell you guys. When I cheated on my fiancé, um, she got pregnant, and the lady that I cheated with got pregnant. I didn't know, honestly. That doesn't make it any better. Um, I got married, my wife got pregnant, and so I had the two women pregnant at the same time. Um, my wife and I had the baby at four or half, five months, and she was still born, so she passed away. Uh, four months later, the lady that I cheated with had my daughter, so I would have had two kids four months apart. She had my daughter. I didn't tell my wife that I had another woman pregnant. She sent a letter to my wife's house. We were living in Cleveland. I was at work. I was working 40 minutes from where my wife lived at, where we lived at. She came to my job for the first time. And I knew, you know, how you get that, that intuition. And she gave me the letter and I read it. And it said, and I will never forget this for the rest of my life. I have a baby by your husband. He needs to see his daughter. You are in his way. I'm reading it. I look at my wife. And she's crying. I'm crying. I first thing in my mind was like, it ain't my baby. I didn't even know for sure, but I knew I was sleeping with her often. First thing out of my mind was like, no, not my baby. I deny, you know, not how men do, how we do. What, what I did, I denied it. I got out the car and I started running. I, went, I was recruiting. I go back in there. So 
I, I made all these promises because I was scared that I would never see have the baby. I'd never see the baby. Nah, it ain't my baby, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you got to go to court. And I went to court, make a long story short, we got the DNA test and came back later like Maury Povich. You are the father. That's real. It might be like, you know, um, a weird show, whatever. But that's what I got in the mail. And so um, I told my wife at the time, I was, and she didn't ask me to do this. I did it because I was trying to trying to keep my marriage together. I won't see my daughter, blah, blah, blah. And so I didn't see my daughter. It hurt my daughter. It hurt me. It hurt our relationship. She didn't know. But I wound up telling her about two years ago that I neglected you for probably six years. I didn't see you. I didn't come see you. I didn't want to see you. And it had nothing to do with you, but it had everything to do with your mother because I felt like she trapped me. You know, trapped me or not, I was still having sex with her. I trapped myself. Now, it was years, years I was angry because I'm believing, like, you know, I'm being selfish. Now, you trapped me, you know, blah, blah, blah. Nah, dude, you engaged. You ain't supposed to be speaking with nobody else but your fiance. That's the bottom line. So I finally told my daughter, we met, me, my daughter, and her mother met about two years ago. Me and my, her mother, cool. She's like, hey, let's go out to dinner. So we went out to dinner and we talked. My daughter is like my mother. I know this, but my, her mother don't understand that. My daughter is very a very, very strong-willed young lady. So I, I can tell her anything. I told her, I said, look, I was engaged when I, when I slept with your mother. I cheated on my fiance, and that's how you got here. And she's like, okay. So she's more understanding. My sons, I have two sons that are 23 and 19. They met their sister years ago, and I told them, yeah, I cheated. And they kind of, like, took it in. Um, they didn't say, well, that, you know, not that type of thing. But they know they get along great. They love their sister, and they have a great, great relationship. So I told them to it. I wasn't trying to ease into it. I couldn't ease into it because I waited too long to tell them anyway. So it's like, hey, here's the facts. This was up. I was, I'm still your dad. I love you. I screwed up. You know, I don't feel any different about you. You're here. Let's do this, you know. So, yeah, my kids. But what I realize now is that my kids have my DNA. They have the ability to lie, to cheat, to deceive, to steal. Um, they have the, the ability to be, uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, an abundance of women. My daughter may have the ability to have the, an abundance of men, you know. Um, they do things that teens do. They do things that 20-year-old kids do. Now, they lie, whatever, maybe smoke, drink. But I know how to help them. I know how to combat those urges. I get it. I understand that because they are me. They are the mother, too, but I know. That part of me, that gene is very, very dominant. Because what was passed me down to my father, from my mother or father, that ex extreme personality or that addictive personality is very dominant in my, in my, my blood, my bloodline. So I can help them get through it, you know. But yeah, we talk about it. They know. Can you also share how, how else therapy has, has helped you and how long you went through therapy? Are you still going through therapy? I know you said that it helped you understand the components of relationships and so forth. Um, can you go more into how, how it had helped you so long? Yeah, so it helped me far? because it made me reflect on who I was. It made, me, it made me reflect on who my parents were. Um, it made me take a look at myself and say, you know what, you were wrong. I had to admit to it, Dom and Dex. I had to admit to it. Uh, I went through therapy for seven months, about six or seven months. Uh, I didn't want to go through it. I was fighting it. It was a part of my PTSD, uh, which my PTSD had become thoughts of my childhood and what happened to me in the military. But um, it helped me understand me more. It helped me, helped me um, tell myself that I was wrong and what I was doing was un un unethical and unhealthy because I'm a, if I'm a leader in the, in the Navy, I can't be leading this one way and then going back and talking to my sailors another way. So it taught me to open, it taught me to open up. It taught me to be confident about it. It taught me to, to let it out. It taught me to release. It was therapeutic for me to, to, to go in and, and tell the truth. It taught me how that, you know, telling, truth, telling the truth can be 
very easy to do, you know, because when you tell the truth, you don't have to remember, remember a lie. When you tell a lie, you have to remember that lie. And it changes. And you lose credibility. You lose people. You lose friends. So it taught me how to function the way that I'm supposed to function. It taught me how to fall back on my childhood morals, which I did have. It taught me how to be a better, a better person. It taught me to understand people. It taught me not to judge people, which I was doing that too. Who am I to judge people? I'm just as jacked up as the next person, you know? So it taught me to, to, to listen and sit back and, 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 and go over everything and process it and go back to my childhood and wonder why I was acting the way I was acting, why I was verbally abusive, why I was a cheater. I was chasing a high. I was chasing a sex high. And I tell people drugs are a lot more powerful than sex because you can get drugs um, and get high and, be, and feel good. But then there's times where you, if you don't have money to get drugs, you have sex to get the drugs. But it taught me that I had a lot of major addictions. I had a lot of major demons that I was just siding with. You know, I was like accepting because doing bad made me feel good. Doing bad was fun. Doing bad was attractive to me. Being healthy, being moral, being ethical was too boring to me. I like living life on the edge. And I had to admit all of that stuff because I could do something bad, but I was so good and I'm bragging. I was so good in the Navy. And I think I was such a solid leader that I could do something wrong and, and turn around and do something right and everything would go away. That's how we were in the military when I came in. You know, you, you do something right or you do something bad, you got to turn around and fix it by doing one thing right or two things right. That was my mindset, even in relationships. And then women went for it and we made it better. So I thought, but they never forget, you know, but, um, yeah. So my it, it, therapy was a session that I needed. I wish I had gone through it maybe years ago, but I didn't, wasn't mature enough to understand and process it. I wasn't mature enough to accept it. Had I went through therapy at 30 years old, I'd have got upset or probably got kicked out or probably cursed her out or something. I wasn't ready for it. You know, the fact remains that I'm a slow learner. I mature very slow, but I know that. And so then now that I know that I'm going to get there, and I knew that I was, I've always a, was a slow learner and I've always matured slow, but now that I know if, if I got to wait for two months or three months to get to this point, I can wait without doing anything in between to get to that point. You know, some people do something and they repent. They go to church and they repent. Repent means to totally turn away from it, but to make it think they make, make it like it's okay. It's not okay to, to just use repenting as a, an excuse you know, to, to clean up your, your egregious ways or acts. So um, I don't, I, I believe in repenting, but I don't have to do that because I, you know, fix it before I have to go ask for help or mercy. Let me ask this, Leon, uh, now that, you know, you're an adult man in your fifties and you have kids, you have grandkids, uh, have you ever been able to reconcile the fact that you were actually molested? Uh, I know that um, as a child, you said, hey, I, I enjoyed the sex with my babysitter. I, I enjoyed the uh, the kissing with the cousins. But have you ever just really sat back and said, you know what? I, I was actually molested. No, Dom and Dex, I, no, I never, I never told myself that because I didn't want to go back to the times where I wanted to kill my uncle. Because I knew as soon as I accepted that, I was going right back to that that mindset. Although, albeit he was gone, dead and gone, that thought process would have come right back. And I wasn't ready to handle that, bro. I handle it now. You know, I talk about it. I speak about it freely because there are little boys that are being molested and raped, and little girls too. But I wasn't ready to, to say it and, and 
I wasn't ready to accept that, bro, because it was like, to me, that would have put a dent in my manhood, you know? And because I've, I've led thousands, hundreds of thousands of sailors that were molested. And then when I talk to them about it, they become sheepish. You know, they go into a shell. They don't want to admit to it. They come in my office happy and, you know, cheerful. And then we sit down and talk and they open up totally different person. And I didn't want to be that person within myself by admitting to saying, admitting to that, the fact that I was molested. I was like, nah. And I said, as a senior leader, I said on panels about sexual abuse, child molestation, domestic violence. And on those panels, there were psychiatrists, they were, they were psychologists, they were social workers. And here I am sitting there hearing, listening to these stories and cringing, but they, they, they didn't know what I was thinking because I couldn't show it. I'm gonna, I'm this big, strong, confident man and I'm going to break down crime because I'm hearing about these little kids getting molested or this man being beat by his wife or this woman being beat by her husband. I'm sitting on these panels and I'm cringing because I'm hearing these stories and I'm seeing these pictures and it's reminding me of what I went through as a child. It was hard. So I blocked it out that I wasn't molested. Oh, it didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to me. But it kept coming back. It kept coming back. It kept coming back. And then when I went to therapy, she's like, you just need to admit to it. And I'm in there crying and not want to admit to it, but I finally admitted to it. You know, so I had to say, you know what? That was my way of forgiving even my babysitter. Even though for years, I said she put me on the right path on a sexual course. I was a sexual deviant, you know, for many years. And I thanked her for it because she opened me up to sex at such a young age. I was experienced throughout my life. So I didn't have to meet a girl and, like, not know what to do. I met a girl she didn't know what to do. So now I'm in control. But I thanked her for years for that. But until I realized it was... I was molested, bro. I, I just didn't admit to it until I went through therapy. Three, three of the uh, four people that you know um, committed these acts against you are, are deceased. Uh, I don't know if you know the status of the the babysitter, uh, but have you been able to to forgive? Yeah. So what happened? Um, the babysitter. I think she's still alive. What happened to me is 2016, I went to the barbershop and the barber, my barber, George Moore Jr., a uh, great man, was, I didn't know him at the time. He was just doing my beard. And so he was upset that, I don't say he was upset. He was just venting. You know how you get that barbershop talk. And he was like, man, I need somebody to help me talk to these kids, get them off the street. We're starting this new program called Legacy Reentry. We're trying to, you know, blah, 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 blah. You're trying to get people jobs and get them clothes and get them fed. And so the barbershop owner, which was a friend of mine, he said, well, why don't you talk to the dude that's sitting in your chair? And he stopped cutting me. He's like, eh. And he said, yo, man, who are you? And I told him, I said, yeah, I'm Liana, just retired, 32 years. Um, he said, hey, man, why don't you come to my church tonight? I want to talk to you. I said, well, I haven't been to church in a long time, but I believe in God. I just keep it simple, right? So I went to his church. Long story short, I went to his church. We talked. He recorded me. And he said, man, I just got to the third grade. I was talking to him about being molested and all that stuff, dysfunctional. And he said, why don't, and he said seven words to me, Dex and Dom. He said, why don't you just write a book? So this is not about the book, but I'm telling you the story. Um, I said, I don't know how to do that. So I went home. I came here right here in this apartment. I just started typing. But what happened was, as I started typing, I started visualizing my story. And I started taking myself through my story. I started rehearsing my story. It started coming back. I started getting emotional. I started feeling everything. And I'm like, man, I, I was typing Dex and I was upset while I was typing because I could see the whole scene over again. And I said, the only way I'm going to have to get through this is to forgive them. 
I have to keep reading. So you know how you type a chapter, it's not done. You got to go over and over and over and over. I kept reading and reading and reading. And I'm like, man, I, it made me think about their death then. It made me think about my cousin's death. It made me think about my uncle's, my uncle being murdered. It made me think about my babysitter possibly being abused because she abused me. So I said, you know what? I started feeling relieved as I typed. The more I typed, the better I felt. The better I felt, I kept telling myself positive things. And then it came to me, dude, you just, you gotta, you just got to forgive them and forgive yourself. I never knew how to forgive anybody. I wanted to always hurt people. I wanted to hurt people when I was playing football. I didn't like playing football. I liked hurting people. You know, then I loved, you know, playing football because it was part of the sport that I love, but hurting people. Then I learned how to box and I wanted, I liked punching people. So I helped. So forgiving them reduced my anguish, reduced my anger. I had very bad anger issues. And I found a new person in me, like, you know, a person wants to be happy. I want to be so, more social. I am social, but I don't want to be angry no more. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody. I got tired of living that life. I got tired of that being in my heart. I got tired of that being in my spirit and my soul. So writing about it helped me learn how to forgive them and say, I forgive you. I went years without crying. I went years without apologizing to people. I went years, people that I hurt, not people that hurt me. I went years about without, without you know, saying, you know, well, hey, let's talk about that. So I became a really cold, callous type of person, you know, cynical, all of that, um, disrespectful. And so I, I just got, it was wearing, it was weighing on my mind, bro. It was weighing on me so tough that not only was I eating bad, but I had a heart attack in 2013 because of all the negativity, just weighed me down. And thank God I got God on my side. He touched me. I didn't die from the heart attack, but it was like, look, you need to start thinking better, feeling better, eating better, and having, you know, positive thoughts. So it was a way of just re forgiving them, forgiving myself. Hey, Leon, what would you, uh, and I'm just going to be asking some questions as some people are leaving. Uh, what would you, what advice, what tips, what's, what message would you give parents? The message that, that I would give parents that are listening right now is to a couple of things. Don't force your kid to talk to you. We have this thing where we say, yeah, I'm not your friend. I'm not your role model. You have to be inviting to your kids so they want to talk to you, right? I carried this stuff on through my life, not because my parents weren't approachable, but I was afraid of just letting it out and talking about it and communicating. We didn't have dinner at the table. We didn't talk about things. So we didn't, we didn't sit down and talk. We didn't have dinner like that. Um, but have dinner with your kids, teach them how to talk, teach them how to communicate. Don't talk at them. Listen. The biggest thing you do is listen to your kids. Be, it's like being a, a, a leader in the military. Let your kids vent to you. Don't push them in the, don't push them in the corner. You know, your, your kid may be gay or transgender uh, or want to transition. You have to, you have to understand that that's their mind. That, that, the, the kids are kids. This generation is different, but they're very intelligent. They listen. They want you to be real and honest with, the, with, with them. Don't yell. I, I was a big yeller. I yelled a lot. And when, kid, when you yell at your kids, we've been yelling at kids for years. I was yelled at, and I just paid it for it. It's wrong. We can't do it because you, if you do that, your kids are going to find somebody. Trust me, they're going to find somebody to communicate with. But I would tell them, you know, listen to your kids. You know, uh, 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 appreciate them. Let them know that you appreciate them. You know, you can't ride your kids butt like your parents rode you. You know, let them be free thinkers. Let them be open-minded. If your kid is 6'2", 230, and you think he should be a linebacker, but he wants to dance, let him dance. If your kid is seven, 
seven one, and you think that he should be uh, a center or playing basketball, and he wants to macrame paint or something, let him macrame, let him paint, let him be an artist. Don't force your kids in a direction they don't want to go in. You're not, you can't live your life vicariously through them. That's a big problem we all have. I did the same thing with my sons. I want to play football, but my son don't want to do that. He, you know, he wants to be an actor or whatever. But um, be a, you know, listen to your kids. Be very, very approachable. Um, you can't. So I, I, I would force a lot of my ways on my kids because I'm structured, you know, militant, military. But they, I can't expect them to clean like I clean. You have to let allow your kids to grow into who they're going to be. Don't force it on because you can't stand to see the bed not made up for. You can't stand to see crumbs on the counter. You can't stand to see hair in the sink or toothpaste in the sink. I was the same way, you know, and I pushed my kids away and, and make them curl up in the ball. Make It'll crush your little spirit. So being a great listener before we fly off the handle and yell and scream, you know, be approachable. If your kids want to do what they want to do, allow them, but give them a little guidance course correction don't always stay in their business you know the punishment is not going to do it all the time they'll just become more angry and more distance distant you know so um listening and and being very approachable is very very important and don't yell i know kids now that when you yell they, they just curl up yeah leah I, I think this will be the last question that i have uh, as it relates to your healing process, do you see yourself as healed or are you still a No, I'm, I'm both. I'm healed from all the negative things, but I'm still a work in process because I know I can get better. You know, I haven't found out everything, but I'm looking for everything. And as I look for everything and I'm seeking it, it's going to come to me. But I'm healed. And I, and I say that uh, gracefully and I feel good about it, but I want more healing. You know, I want more. I want I want to see more. I want to I want to hear more. I want to learn more. I have to be open to, you know, one day possibly being, you know, engaged and married and listen to what my fiance, what she may bring to me. So I'm not, compl I'm not done, you know, cause she's going to bring a new perspective. She's going to bring new ideas. And like I said, going through my therapy, I had to learn how to listen. I like to listen now, you know, cause I want more. I want to grow more. I want to be 10 feet tall, you know, mentally and, and, and my soul. I want my spirit and my aura to be huge. I wanted to go, you know, around the world. So <clears throat> My thing is, I'm healed, but I'm still growing because my ideas may be good for her. her. Her ideas may be good for me. And together, you know, we may be, we will share a lot of things, a lot of likes, a lot, a lot of dislikes. Again, those are components of a relationship. So, no, I'm still, I'm still moving forward. I'm still learning. I still want more. I still crave because I know I have a, it's not like a long way to go, but I'm at where God wants me to be. But I know that they're, I'm not at the pinnacle. You know what I'm saying? I'm not. And then it goes like this. And when you get here, that could be heaven for me. Whether I'm here or not, I'm still going. I want to get to that point where I can always look down and look back and bring somebody else along and be a great listener and understand their problems. You know, all the problems in the world are the same. The only thing that changes the people. And uh, somebody asked the question, are you uh, currently No, I'm married? not currently married now. Uh, I've been divorced since 2007. Um, I've been single for four and a half, five years now. And I needed, great. that's a great question. I needed to be single, but what I, thought, what I found out, uh, Dex and Dom, in 2016, when I started going through therapy, um, was that I was in relationships straight for 32 years. From 1984, my first Navy girlfriend, to 2014, 15, 
uh, when I broke up with my last girlfriend, great, great woman. But I was carrying the baggage I had from my first girlfriend from 1984 up until my, you know, my last girlfriend, 2000, and we broke up in 2014. But I was carrying all that negativity, all that baggage from one relationship to the next. I never gave myself time to heal. I never gave myself time to understand another woman. I never gave myself time to be a good listener. I didn't. I would take what I had from her to her. And then when I take from her to the next one, I was taking two or three women into the next relationship. So I was always seeing these old women. I was always looking at these old, not old women, but old ways that I had that I thought was the women, but it was me making them that way. They were reacting to my reaction. You know what I'm saying? And it was 90% of the time I was wrong. And I'd be like, you know, why you, you know, but they were reacting to my reaction, which is, you know, being a listener now, I, 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 I don't mind being led or taught by a woman. There was a time where I wasn't going to let that happen. No, but now I'm, I'm good with it, you know. So it's not that I'm I'm mad because I'm getting older now. I'm about to die, you know. I got to get with somebody. I got to hurry up. No, this is real, man. This is the real me wanting to be in a nice, healthy, fruitful relationship. You know, I have a relation, great relationship with God, and so I'm on the right path. I know that. I don't worry about anything anymore. You know, I don't. I feel like your, your comment actually addressed a, another question that came up. So uh, we're, we're getting ready to, to bring this to a close. But before we do so, uh, we know that you're an author. Uh, you're also a speaker. So uh, can you tell the listening audience uh, about your book, uh, how they can get in contact with you? Uh, if they okay, my book is called Broken. It came out April 18. Um, it's in Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and everywhere. They, really, everywhere they distribute distribute books. Google, Google, uh, you what they call it? Um, Google reads uh, good read. Um, I'm on Instagram as Leon R. Walker. I'm on Facebook as Leon R. Walker. I'm working on my YouTube channel. Uh, I just wrote another. I just wrote another ebook, and I will tell you about that. But uh, another ebook because I was addicted to porn as a child. And um, I wrote an ebook, a training ebook about that. So I'll release that next month on the 15th. Um, I'm writing two biographies about some two friends of mine that had a very dysfunctional childhood as well. So yeah, you can reach me on Instagram. I'm always posting stuff daily, um, two, maybe three times a day, sometimes four or five times a week. Uh, I'm always on Facebook. Uh, I speak, I travel. My website will be back up this week. It's called iinspire1.com. It's down now for maintenance. I inspire one.com. Um, but yeah, I, um, I speak, uh, I don't consider myself a motivational speaker. I consider myself a messenger, man. Um, because I wake up with thoughts and ideas and I just give it out to people, you know? So I speak, I'm going, supposed to be going to Houston this month or maybe next month to talk to, uh, speak at, um, alternative school. I just did a domestic violence speech, uh, here on base in great lakes for domestic violence. I'm a big advocate of that. Um, so I just left Cleveland. Uh, I talk, spoke at the Juvenile Detention Center, 120 young men. I spoke there. I'm going back because there are other di- 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 juvenile detention centers in Ohio that I want to get to. So, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Google. I'm on Google. You know, my little retirement center is on there. So I'm all around, man. YouTube, I'm working on that too. But, yeah, I Inspire One is my, is my website. But uh, I appreciate you guys having me, man. It's been very, very uh, enlightening for me, you know, because you're asking great questions. When I talked to y'all a while ago about the interview, the questions, well, I was like, man, those are really thorough. So well thought out questions, brother. I, I appreciate that. Appreciate you coming on. And, and, and before we, we let you go, is there anything else that you want to share with uh, 
Yeah, you know, I tell people to think inside the box. We are, we've been telling people to think outside the box for years. But my, my message to you is to um, think inside the box. Study your DNA, your genetics, your parents. That's how I found out, found out who I was. Not only who I was, but who I'm capable of. With the addictive personality that my mother had, I switched, I switched my addictions from drinking alcohol to smoking cigarettes and cigars to being very successful as a leader, as a friend, as a father, as a teacher, as an author now. I want to be successful. I want to help people. So I put all that focus and energy into bringing people along. My father's extreme personality, now I work longer. I work smarter because he was able to do that. He gave that to me. I wasn't tapping into it the right way. I was tapping into it in a negative way with chasing women, lying, deceiving, drinking, smoking. So I switched my focus, right? Think inside the box. Who are you? What does your genetic give you? What does your DNA give you? I'm all about that life. I want to see what's happening. So that's what I do every single day now. I implement that, my, my mindset, my thought process, process into being a better, a stronger, a, a, a greater, a better listener. Uh, I have my own visionary, my own vision, my own blueprint. I tell people, don't rely on people to give you anything. Develop your own vision, develop your own blueprint, and give your gift away. You know, give it away to people. Awesome. Thank you. Leon, man, again, thank you so much. You just don't know. Uh, you know, a lot of people are chiming in. Um, a lot of people are saying thank you. We want you to um, go back and look at the comments. And once again, we really appreciate you just taking time out and joining us. Thanks for having story. me. I appreciate y'all, man. Have a great evening. All right, brother. Bye. Right, right, bro. Take care, man. So everyone, we'd like to thank you once again for joining us on another great episode, packed episode, heavy episode, and we really appreciate everyone supporting us. If you want to continue supporting us in other ways, uh, we do have other options. Uh, we do have uh, opportunities for people and uh, business owners and, and so forth to sponsor, um, and, and we do have sponsorship options. You can go to our website. Uh, to get more information, you can email us, info at womenopenup.com. But if you want to have a chance to uh, have your products and services and, uh, and other things as well on our, on our broadcast and on our podcast and so forth, feel free to contact us. Let's collaborate. Let's see how we can um, better help each other out. But once again, this is Women Open Up, a show where we are redefining manhood through transparency. My name is Dominique Bond. I'm Dirk Severus. And we are out. Thank you again and join us next week. It's cutting into your exercise time. <coughs> it's stabbing you in the back nine. <coughs> and it's attacking your peace of mind. <sighs> it's pain. And it's getting in between you and the life you want to live. CBD Medic targets your pain at its source. It's fast-acting relief with active OTC ingredients, plus the added benefits of THC-free hemp oil. Get back to your life with CBD Medic, available online and at CVS. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.